0: Our goal is 125 new farms throughout New England on a small scale, meaning around each hub there'll be 21 farms supporting everything from growing uh, broilers, uh, pasture-raised chickens, to pigs, to lamb, and to layers.
1: It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. I get so excited about what I see happening in agriculture uh, across the country. Lots and lots of stories. Lots of people that are getting into agriculture, people that are returning to some of the really basic principles that are so important to agriculture. And terms come up, like hub and spoke agriculture. What does that mean exactly? But today, we're going to go to New England. And I'm really happy to welcome a couple of guests today from Azaluna Farms. Did I pronounce that right, Ken? Did I say Azaluna Farms correct?
0: yeah Luna food yeah it's a farm it's really about once in a blue moon here
1: once in a blue moon well once in a blue moon i've got ken Rappaport on and ken is a co-founder and farmer and he's got quite a background that found him into farming too we're going to talk about that a little bit ken and and ken you're also joined by nick minater uh nick is the director of ag operations and ken i'm going to invite you to introduce nick a little bit further so tell me about nick
0: nick basically runs and is responsible for our hub and spoke model developing it building out the host system and i uh, nick spent uh i guess he's got i asked him earlier he's 35 years doing agriculture since he started working with sheep as a, as a young boy young man and uh you know he ran recently we found him he was seven years uh managing uh University of Rhode Island's Animal Sciences Farm, uh, which is really the oldest in the country. So that's where I found Nick. And it's been a real pleasure to have him on board, super capable and uh, just a pleasure to work with. So, hey, Nick, I'm going
1: to turn the tables on you right now. So uh, introduce Ken to me.
2: Ken's an interesting guy. He's, um, you know, the leader of the ship here and, and uh, always has us pointed in the right direction and, and has the really has the big picture in mind with the um, all of the projects that we undertake here at Azaluna um, and certainly keeps us uh, headed in the right direction. Okay. Now we got to go back and talk about this direction. You know, what I find
1: difficult sometimes to get my arms around is when we're talking about almost like a, a movement and things that are happening in a, in, in a region. And when you're talking about farming systems and people getting into agriculture and pulling the whole thing together, it, it takes a while for listeners to get that into focus. But where I like to start in a way is let's take a, an area, take a region or a community or a town. And and Ken, you are in broadly New England, but help narrow it down a little bit more to say where you're functioning and what your systems are. And then we're going to say what those things are, what the farming's like and what the image is and so forth. But But, but tell me where you work from.
0: Sure, that we're in a place called Woodstock, Connecticut, which is sort of right on the border. Uh, we're in Connecticut, but we border Massachusetts. We border Rhode Island, and we're actually designated by the federal government as the last green valley. And if you can go, if you were, you want to get on a spaceship from Elon Musk or somewhere else, you can actually see lights from space that actually light from from Washington D.C. to New to Boston complete lights, there's only one dark area. And that is here in the northeast section of Connecticut. And we hope a lot of people don't hear too much about it through the podcast. Maybe they do, but there's no light pollution here. So it's very rural, a lot of farming. And at one point, you know, this area, you know, supported, uh, you know, food going to Boston or going down to New York. I mean, that's the way urban areas, uh, you know, back in the you know, in 1800s, that's where they got the food. People came in from Western Massachusetts or Eastern Connecticut, uh, upstate New York, and brought food down to those, you know, consolidated urban areas. So that's it's sort of in that same tradition that we're trying to to work. But today, rather than horse and wagon, we ship things like uh, like Amazon through the uh, through the internet, right? So yeah, we've we've modernized.
1: Yeah, you know what? You you make it sound awfully appealing. I want to go there just to see stars. I mean, I go. Pretty much all over the country, and it's hard to find those places you can walk outside at night and see the stars like I think I remember seeing years and years ago. So that's that's exciting in in itself. So you've got a great place to be.
0: Yeah, no, I, and I would say follow on. We we made it unique, and we actually have an event center here. You see behind me, we're in a conference room, but we actually, being a what I term a good swamp Yankee, we don't like to spend money. You have to. It's a tradition in New England. And we actually have a house that I bought for a dollar relocated here to a hilltop. We're at the highest level. Uh, I look out, there's a ridge about 30 miles out. That's it. I'm at 800 feet. There's one uh, say 30 miles out of at 700 feet. And after that is the Atlantic ocean. So we actually get ocean breezes up here. Amazingly. We're only about say 50 to 60 miles from the ocean. And the house is a put back in museum quality, 1710 structure that we actually uh, have it's all po- uh, uh, posted beam and put together with wrought iron nails from uh, the, you know uh, everything's authentic it's an amazing i use a curator out of sturbage village to help me do it
1: that sounds fantastic that's worth a trip in itself so we get to see stars get to see house can people come actually come there and stay we're going to get to farming pretty quick but can can you come and stay sure. there or stay on the farm
0: yeah, we, we do have two rooms that, uh, are essentially set up there. Honestly, uh, you're living, uh, in, you're going back to 1710, except that we did have, we have radiant heat and we have all the, uh, uh, pieces. But yeah, and then we are in the process of, uh, doing, uh, regenerative farm tours. We're building a, we have state of the art 1977 John Deere 150 horsepower tractor with a, with a, uh, an Amish wagon that we we give tours almost, uh, we try to do it almost every Saturday to be able to bring people out to the farm to see and understand what's happening here. It's a big part of our Azaluna mission of education, uh, you know, through the, through the entire food cycle all the way from farming right to food. You know what? Somehow
1: this reminds me of readings of Emerson. I used to like to kind of get in and read throw and read emerson and they were just up the road from you a ways and and some of the things that emerson was speculating at the time he was lamenting the large-scale agriculture and you can imagine writing in the 1840s complaining about the fact that in western massachusetts uh, the farms were getting too large scale, and, and it was kind of good riddance when for some people that started moving, ironically, moving further west. And I say it's ironic because I think now those are more larger scale as you kind of go on through Ohio and Illinois and Iowa and Nebraska. But from that original perspective, there, was, um, there were people like Emerson and, and like Thoreau that we're recognizing appreciating and wanting to somehow keep this going this smaller scale agriculture and uh you know now we can go ahead 150 what 170 180 years now since that time and and in a way i kind of imagine you're you're back to helping realize emerson and thoreau's dreams of um, Stop me if I'm going too far here because it's um, – but just this, no, this Roger, action right and this feeling.
0: Tra- you're right on track. I mean, we. I got quoted uh, – I, I, I've always loved uh, Thoreau. And, and Thoreau always said, chase your dreams. And it, you know, this is what we're doing here. And it, what's interesting is uh, – I think I use the term agroecological lighthouse. We're, com- we're teaming up, and I can't announce quite yet. But, for example, this summer we're going to be growing a specialty breed – all of our animals are pasture raised and we're using a specialty breed which is a combination of a delaware naked neck chicken that's a uh, a custom and again nick can do a better job than i can about being outside but people these farms out west which you know it's hard for the urban dwellers to get out there let you know you, you know nick and i have driven out west to visit these farms They want to obviously build a better connectivity between their brand and what they're doing. They're doing regenerative farming out there. But you can imagine knowing, Roger, as you do about agriculture with biosecurity, you don't really want people going into a a chicken house that has a half a million birds in case you infect those birds. So here... We want to be able to create a situation where we can get and allow people to interact with these animals where, sure, there's a risk they infect them, and sure, there's a risk that we're going to create uh, something where our animals might die off, but there'll be a smaller number, and obviously, we take precautions to that. But the reality is it's more important to create the connectivity than it is to have them, say, dress up completely in spacesuits to go into a barn, uh, or just don't allow them in at all. So you're, you're absolutely correct in that we are trying to sort of go back the original areas of farming, though I would say the larger farms can produce food at a more economical rate than we can. Absolutely. We're more of a, a very specialty hand-tendered meat, so to speak. Delicious, but it, it's difficult to grow it on scale here in New England, where we don't have all the infrastructure, slaughterhouses, we don't have grain fields, a lot of things we have to bring in to New England, and the cost of land here is is, is extremely expensive. The value we have as azalona is that we're close to customers, and that somebody can get here from New York City in two and a half hours, Boston, an hour and a quarter, Providence, Rhode Island, Hartford, within 45 minutes to an hour. So that's the... And that's just to our farm, but the idea is for us on this hub and spoke, Roger, is to actually create... Our goal is 125 new farms throughout New England on a small scale, meaning around each hub, there'll be 21 farms supporting everything from growing uh, broilers, uh, pasture-raised chickens, to pigs, to lamb, and to layers. Uh, we're staying away from uh, a beef. We, we we team up with other people who are doing beef. But the idea is that in New England, again, it's hard to get contiguous land to run to run pasture-raised uh, uh uh beef operations just because there's just not enough land here not least cost effectively to do it on a, any kind of uh grand scale
1: well and you know my my image too of a lot of new england is it's not like this broad areas i just drove across illinois and i went from you know like rock island all the way down to um you know across the, uh, through peoria down through Champaign by the university of illinois and you can just see miles of flat land in every direction. So you kind of envision turning these tractors around that cost $600,000, and they've got this huge equipment to be able to farm these large spreads. And I've always had this sense that there there weren't that many large tracts. You know, you don't see just flat farmland. You've got rolling hills and woods and other things in in new england that seemed like it was just made for smaller scale agriculture rather than necessarily the really large stuff that had the extremely large equipment and so forth
0: you have to farm according to what your land is and here our challenge is getting uh trailers and wagons that can go up and down hills without tipping over because everything is small or going between neighbors we have the farm such that we have urban houses my la- land here we have even on this 200 acre acre farm it's not all together there's 50 acres here there's another 30 acres here and another 50 acres here so you're moving equipment in between farms and in, or in between houses and so we have to have smaller equipment but it's still got to be ruggedized. It's still got to be efficient, as efficient as possible. So it's a challenge for us, and, and Nick can get into that later. But he's been great at finding places that can customize equipment for us and building a system that this actually can work and be cost as cost-effective as possible to be able to still deliver you know, phenomenal foods to our consumers. And, and we can talk later about it, but you know, really, I guess, in a nutshell – we're we are not only producing where we're selling our uh, and we're primarily protein based. We're selling meats, you know, to restaurants and to some wholesale work. But a lot of what we've combined with uh, combined with a kitchen to be able to at Johnson Welles University to do uh, value added products. And down. then all these farms essentially buy all, we buy, everybody farm source, we buy 100% of the of what they're producing. So they don't have to worry, the smaller farms don't have to worry about marketing and reselling. It all comes back into Azaluna. And then we produce a value-added product like ch- a pasture-raised bone broth, which has been called next level of and phenomenally uh, nutritious and healthy. And then we sell that out and then we feed that money back to support those small farms. Uh, It's kind of an interesting model. We're still proving it out, Uh, but we think the promise is there. And it's, you know, we we believe in the the concept and mission. And ultimately we say, uh, I guess, you know, what we always do is, you know, regenerative farms, better food and stronger communities. Because we do believe that connecting people with the land, uh, with farming, Will allow them to think better about what they're eating, what they're doing, because working with the what the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, food is medicine, and that we have to do a better job of what we eat. And they say, is it twenty three point five trillion dollars can be saved by changing the way we eat, which is a big, big number. Uh, And as a we're not going to do it ourselves, but we can. We have to. The way to do this is to introduce the idea in consumers' minds and then they can start to impact with their dollars where they're spending from a from a sustainability or uh, uh and, and from uh from a health standpoint and start to change the food system so that they're not eating the unhealthy type of sugared up foods and with loads of preservatives and all the other things that are ultimately creating a lot of disease in our in our country and increasing uh healthcare costs beyond where it, it becomes uh, uh to use that word again sustainable
1: yeah. Oh, we've got a lot of things to unpack here. And now, Nick, it's your turn. I need to I need to turn to you a little bit because we're going to talk about uh, to be the director of the ag operations. I mean, it seems like you kind of have a mothership in a way. I mean, you've got a farm. So even before we started following from the hub or something out to the spokes to all these other farms and the 125, 120 farms that you're creating, why don't you describe to me what's the farm... What's this base operation? What's what's grown on on your core farming operation? And um, let's talk about the kind of the species and the setup, if you would.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the hub farms are designed to kind of be the center of operation um, in each local area, um, and we're set up with all the resources we need to produce um, the different species that we run. So we're running. Uh, Hogs, broilers, laying hens, and sheep. Um and so our hub farms um you know are the are the the basis of operation and, and have all the supplies and resources necessary uh for not only themselves but but, but for also our spoke farms. Um, once the animals get out to our spoke farms, um, they're using equipment that is is owned by Azaluna and, and the hub farm um so we're providing them all the resources to raise these animals as well as the animals to raise um so it's really you know resources are are hard to come by up here in in new england um grain especially um you know trailers and uh, tractors and skid steers are, are is expensive equipment especially when you're raising animals on a small scale um so it's nice for the the hub farm to be able to um provide access to that equipment and and those resources for our spoke producers.
1: Well, let's describe one. Let's take a hub farm then, for example, and, and like how many acres would it might be setting on or how many, what fields are set up for pigs and how much are for cattle and how much for sheep and what about for chickens? And do you have buildings and, and that sort of thing?
2: So, so the farm here in Woodstock, um, we're, you know, one of the challenges of new England is, is the growing season is pretty short. um, So here at the hub farm in Woodstock, we we have layers year round um, on this farm and we have the sheep year round on this farm. Um, So we're we're lambing out all of our ewes here um, that we're using on the hub farm. Um, That'll be going out to, you know, lambs going out to spoke farms to be raised on pasture. Um, So we have facilities to lamb ewes and house ewes over the winter um, when they're not on pasture. Um, The same thing with the laying hens Our laying hens are have a permanent structure, but they are have 24 seven outdoor access. The door is never closed on their structure. Um, And so they have constant access to pasture. Um, Our, our hogs come in, um, we buy feeder pigs in uh, from a local farm in Massachusetts. uh, And they come in um, at about a hundred pounds to our hub farm, where we train them um, to electric fence and pasture conditions before they go out to our spoke farms. And the same thing with our broilers. They come in from our supplier. Um, we have a brooder set up here at the hub farm. Um, so the chicks come in, spend three weeks in our brooder, uh, and then when they're feathered up and ready to go out on pasture, we uh, transport them to our spoke farms to raise them for us to finish them for the for the rest of their um, growth cycle on pasture.
1: Now, do you then at the hub farm is that that do you own those? Uh, that livestock and then the hub farms is, is grow or growing them out. I mean, the spoke farms are growing the livestock out and then, and then uh, they're paid for growing that period of time. Is that, is that how Absolutely, it works?
2: Absolutely. Yep. So the ownership of the animals is 100% Azaluna and um, spoke producers are compensated for um, raising those animals so you're going out to
1: the farms then and they're getting some number of hogs and chickens and so forth and then you pick them up bring them back in and then you have a central spot that you control or own for processing to turning them into into meat
2: and eggs and so forth uh no that's that's one of the big challenges again here in new england and, I, and i'm sure nationwide really um is is slaughter capacity um we have a lot of I shouldn't say a lot we have several small slaughterhouses in in the region um not a lot that can even handle the volume that we're producing at um, so that's one of our big challenges is is finding produce finding slaughterhouses that can handle our capacity um and we do use all usda inspected facilities uh, because of the the final product that we are um creating that's a that's one of our requirements um so we have a couple um we have one one slaughterhouse that produ- that uh we use for our, for our poultry and they do a great job for us. Um, they're, they're about a four hour drive away from the farm here in, in Woodstock. Um, and then our, for our hoof livestock, we have another facility that does, does a good job as well. And, um, that one's a little bit closer. It's about an hour and a half away. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's one of our big challenges to, to bring those animals back in and, and have the, the capacity to um, process them. Yeah. And then how many hub farms are there? So right now it's just the one here in Woodstock. Okay. Um, and once once we have the system perfected, we'll be able to um replicate it here uh across New England.
1: And then you go out to the spoke farms. And then how many spoke farms might there be? Correct.
2: So we'll have um each species we'll have four to five spoke farms for. Um so we'll have four, you know, four 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 local farms producing hogs, four farms producing broilers, uh, four doing um layers for us and, and lambs as well.
0: And the goal well, is if I could just interject. Yeah, sure. Project. Jump in, Ken. The goal, the goal would be is we're, tr- these spoke farms typically, we're not trying to double up and have them do two species. We want them to do one species. Most of these people uh, okay. in England farming, farming, farming is a a hobby, right? So if it's a hobby and you have to have a real job to pay for your bills and this allows them to enjoy the farming and get a piece of it, spread that far enough out so that elementary schools, middle schools can come out and see chickens It's you know, like find out where their meat comes from. So we encourage them to do, to do tours. And then we're trying to bring in grad students who would come actually give the tour. So the farmer himself or herself doesn't have to actually do the tour. They'll meet the, you know, the grad student would meet them out at this yeah. spoke farm, explain it, give them a little experiential, uh, you know, understanding. Maybe go back, watch a video of, of one of the hub farms. And, but again, what's interesting about this, when you look at the cost, for example, when you collect uh, our, our chickens, and I think what are we talking about, about 400 neck or 500 each farm. When we go out, for them to buy just the plastic crates to move them, it's enormously expensive. So no one's going to do this, but we own all the crates. We So when it comes to all the transportation, the trailers, to move 100 pigs around, this is nothing that anybody who's doing 20 or 50 pigs is going to want to do. It becomes impossible. So what happens is that people give up on it. The other yeah. thing that's interesting is each town here in New England wants to regulate. So we ask them to come to look at a hub farm so that they're, you know, there's 100 towns in Rhode Island, maybe 150 in Connecticut, ridiculous number of towns in New England that regulate everything. They want to come out and see to make sure because they don't, a lot of places restrict you from having chickens or restrict you from pigs. They can come out and actually see it. They're planning sure. and zoning boards. Look and say, "Oh, this is not going to create a nuisance." And we explain them why it's going to be good for their community and their kids to understand a lifelong, become lifelong learners and understand what they're putting in their mouth will have an impact on their their capabilities, their their whether they become PhDs or they become di- uh, ditch diggers. And some of that's tied to whether you're eating right. <laughs> You know that's
1: it's really really interesting. I, I like what you're describing, and I think it's a picture that our listeners are starting to starting to see, getting into the focus here. The other thing you mentioned though is that it's almost impossible for people now to make a living full time out of only farming, and so many people have to have a job in town or they have some other enterprise. So what I thought I heard you saying, Ken. Is that many of the people in the spoke farms might have um another job or something else and they're able to add an enterprise to be able to produce hogs or cattle or chickens for your overall program so that they're involved with agriculture they're involved with farming but they had didn't have to go out and like get a million dollars to get started up with what it might take anymore for a bare minimum to get going and this combination gives them uh, an income of whatever else they're doing plus this that supports that family. Is it, am I, am I getting that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, and sometimes you know they'll do it, and they won't want to do it for another year. So yeah. once you realize that, once you commit to this, you're committing to twenty four seven by three sixty five to take care of animals. Like we, anyone who's farms understands, it's sure. not a part time. You can't just leave them for the weekend and leave the leave the animals alone. So yeah. there's a there's a there's an aspect of uh, responsibility, which responsibility is a requirement of any civilized nation or country right you're you're, you need to participate and this is all what we're teaching through agriculture to get us to a place where you're starting to build uh you're starting to build uh basic traits uh that that are so important to a having a humane society uh and i think you know it's just an interesting it's an interesting uh Strategy and philosophy. That we're trying to go
1: for. well too, and I've talked to people that are doing this sort of thing, are getting out and getting some acreage, and they, among the things they think about, is not only the income, being outdoors, and so forth. In some cases, they have family, they have kids, they want to learn to do chores and 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 have this outdoor experience and get into farming. And and, and Ken, in a way, this is you've had this kind of journey uh, personally, in a way, because you've had a very successful career in high tech. And I have talked to a number of people of high tech, not many that have been kind of as successful as you haven't engaged with so many companies and that you've been able to get going in high tech, but many that they almost immediately start thinking, gee, if I could do anything, I wish I could farm, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of funny because you, you don't expect that. You think that people kind of reach a stage of success and being entrepreneurs and so forth. And they think, well, now I'm just going to go, You know buy a place in the beach or in aspen and um and and live there but they kind of think something's missing in their life and they'd like to be able to get back and do something about farming agriculture sustainability regenerative and so forth has is very appealing these days
0: well thanks roger but i i think it even goes beyond that my i grew up in a small farm ironically around woodstock new york I am a second generation American. My, my parents were born here, but their grand, my grandparents were born in Europe. And when they came over here, we raised sheep, and my father had a I, I still have it here. Uh, I think it was by the United States Department of Agriculture, uh, uh, a booklet for 15 cents on how to raise sheep. And he he had the booklet out. He was slaughtering the sheep. He had no little or no experience with it. But obviously that, you know, we as a country encourage people to you know grow their own food. And that's what's happening, obviously, throughout our country. And then they gave manuals. And I think what we do here is to be able to go back to a Dr. Saperstein or a Nick Menator, who has enormous amount of experience. We give confidence to these farmers to be able, these, uh, you know, novice farmers to go out and do this. And we give them tools. Honestly, we're even building an app so they could, for our consumers, we can make sure they take a picture of the feed in the morning, a feed at night, water in the morning, water at night, so that they're, we know that they're doing the things right so that we can make sure for our consumers that those animals are being treated humanely without having to send somebody out driving out every day to check on them. We're using – so it's kind of combined of of old-school agriculture and and practices along with the best of technologies to make it as efficient as possible with the concept of just integrating more people in uh, to exposure and understanding of of how we fit in the world. Uh, And and truthfully, even like with COVID and the 100-year event we just had – you know, obviously chickens perish. There's all kinds of uh, avian flus and stuff. So when they come out to farms, yeah. they realize this is not just something that happens to human beings. This is, happens to animals. Yeah, We're just part of this whole this uh, circle of life, so to speak. Well, and Nick,
1: let's get back to these other circles, the circles that you're working in. So if somebody aspires to be a spoke farm... Do you go out and kind of walk around with them and size up whether or not they've got the space or the inclination or the knowledge to be able to, to do it or not? Or do you have to sometimes bring some tough love and say, you know what, I hear this is your dream, but I'm not quite sure you're meant to be a farmer.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. We, we, we have um, a set of standards for every species that we raise um, and requirements for what a spoke farm has, you know, how much space they need. Um, and it's going to vary depending on, on what, what species they want to raise. Um, and we, so we certainly make site visits, um, before even entertaining, um, creating a spoke farm with a person, um, to make sure that the conditions are suitable and that they, they do have enough space and it's, you know, the, the ground isn't too wet and, and, you know, things of that nature. Um, and then we do have a, a, a full set of, uh, standard operating procedures for how the animals are cared for and, and, um, who to contact when something goes wrong? Um, so there is a lot of oversight on on the way our animals produced. And, and you know, back in my university days, the the when you know a freshman class would come onto the farm, the first thing that I would, would always tell them is that we, you know, we really owe these animals a tremendous amount of respect um, for what they provide to us. And um, you know, that still still holds true in this setting. You know, we we need to do what's right for these animals and raise them the proper way and, and not, you know, not not cut any corners on on the way they're being raised and, and the locations that they're being raised and, and the conditions that they're being raised in. So we certainly um, have very high standards on on all of that.
1: What about where they are in, lo- um, say, by a suburb or something like that, or an elementary school or... Uh, What do you have to consider when looking at these spoke farms as to what their neighborhood's like and how welcome they might be and how safe it is to have animals and great Pyrenees dogs and so forth in that particular location?
2: Yep, we have to take all of that into consideration as well. Like Ken mentioned earlier, a lot of these local towns, um, in this area do have bylaws against, um, poultry or against pigs. Um, so you have to be cognizant of that and make sure that, um, the towns that we're, we're going into with producers, um, do allow what, what they're, what we're going to be doing. You know, we're on a, we are doing pretty small scale operations here. Um, so it's not uh, a tremendous lift and not a tremendous amount of land that these producers require. Um, but it's still, we still have to Recognize that there are can be issues with neighbors and and townships and and making sure that we comply with all those standards. I, I mean, I have a sense that because the especially that region of the of the country
1: is getting so filled in with people, that there's more pressures on zoning laws to not let suburbs go everywhere, and that for whatever resistance there used to be about being neighbors to livestock. I would imagine there are some people that are more reluctant to see more houses that are, they just get surrounded by houses and before long, Ken, they're not going to be able to walk out and look at stars like you're able to right now in the the evenings now. So is that happening? Is there that kind of sense of, wait a minute, this is enough building, this is enough concrete and, and maybe some acreage and maybe we need to take another look at having small scale livestock closer in. To our, our towns and villages.
0: Yeah, clearly. I, I was actually just uh, met with all the state senators and, and representatives for Connecticut, and they're 100% behind this. I mean, you know, you've got it on the national scale, you have it on the, on the, on the state and even a local scale. And for us, that's why it was so important to really, you know, eventually we, to do this, because it is, as I often said earlier before we got on air, we're the most uh, efficient, inefficient farming in the world, or trying to be. Uh, that we know that the funding, some of the funding will come through grant money. Well, because the the not only even the hub farms can afford maybe everything that we're putting into them. We do are we are a for-profit business. We're not a nonprofit, but we partner with nonprofits. People can that we think through nonprofits are looking to donate equipment and such to create all this. So the towns. People are cognizant. Again, I keep going back to this hundred year event with COVID. Food has become a, a huge, a huge issue. And people realize where there's shortages of food, how food is impacting us. Towns are realizing they do want more open space. Uh, and that by setting a model and allowing them to come see it makes it a lot easier than describing it in esoteric terms. They can come out and go, Oh, Oh, I see. I can live. We can live with this. And, but there is definitely some concern. I mean, we get cautions like, why does a tractor have to go by at six o'clock in the morning? Can't you can't you drive it by at nine? And the reality is no, you know, it gets hot by ten yeah. o'clock. We need to move quickly. So everybody wants agriculture until, like you said, maybe a, a great pyrenees or a marama dog is barking at night, of uh, scaring yeah. away from a predator, or there's a tractor going by, or there's a little bit of manure smell. But that is we all have to kind of live in balance and we do try to take into account the idea that we're not going to go right next to an area that's uh, you know uh, uh, you know potentially where we put anybody at risk or again, we have to part of this process is to make sure that this is uh, you know acceptable to the towns and they realize that there's a benefit and so far it's been really been been very welcoming. Most people have been, You know uh really happy with what we're doing do you know it's
1: ironic to me that a lot of the complaints about agriculture are the very very large-scale agriculture uh and in some respects there's something you have in common with the model in that uh packing plant that has um that owns hogs and they'll put them into a large operation or one of the big poultry companies that will put something out into a, a, a larger operation. And those kind of operations, um, the, you know, the farmer doesn't necessarily own them. The packer owns the product and and they put them out there and then they take them back and so forth. But the scale, that's what is scary is that even though I've been to many of these operations and some of them are just first class, they just do a really, really good job. And and yet, if they do have a mistake, when you've got thousands and thousands, and over a period of time, maybe millions of birds or something, you know, in an area, you've got more risk of pollution and more risk of odor, and you've got. Uh, it, it would be just different i'm not i'm kind of stumbling around on this one but to me i just think that well that's funny because in a way you are putting things out on farms as a lot of these large-scale operations are and helping take the product back and so forth but the sheer scale many people could stop and think about this and say i don't want to take a chance that this huge operation would be right outside my town and they have lagoons and they have all the manure to dispose of versus a number of small acreages and pastures and so
0: forth. Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, there's always concern. It's like if you you know give you know uh, if I give you an inch, you'll take a uh, you'll take a mile, right? Right, so, right. But, but but I but I think one of the things that we're what's interesting about and it, I'll go back to those terms that you used in your earlier podcast regenerative sustainable right, sure. we don't have a lot of manure issues because we're constantly the animals are all pasture raised so mm-hmm. we're constantly we're rebuilding that soil we're looking at you know seeing all those earthworms and kind of regenerating the soil to to so we don't really we try real hard to make sure everything's going back into the land that we're doing carbon uh, carbon capture and that we're really thinking about the ecological issues of the, the environment. And again, what's so critically important to me is when you get these young adults to come out and see it, I guess on a small scale where they can touch it and they can see it. You know what? It makes them make smarter, intelligent decisions and even understanding of what's happening to produce the foods that may show up in their H-E-B or their Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, you know, look, guys, your dollars are impacting the environment, your dollars and way you're looking, you know, you're as a consumer, you have enormous amount of power on what the larger companies are going to do. But here they can learn firsthand what's involved with it and at least have a better understanding and be better citizens to have a a better insight.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, we've talked to, there's been a lot of talk and books written about NIMBY, not my backyard sort of thing. But uh, but again, one thing we touched on a little earlier is that it's sort of like please in my backyard, being that some people would say, I'd rather have a small farm with some sheep out in the meadow and cows or something than necessarily a subdivision, you know, or or another another strip mall, you know, and and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a transition that you're you're addressing that. But let's talk about the consumers for a few minutes before we wrap up, because raising these products and all these farms in the sub and comes to the fact that there has to be a product at the end that consumers can purchase and and buy. How do you how do you make that transition? What what's available when you process the meat that you're raising? to be able to offer to consumers and restaurants and stores.
0: Sure I, I get it and I'll let Nick jump in at where he needs to. but essentially we're we, we, we do a lot of things through the internet being a, a technology guy but we we'll, we do meat boxes you can buy you can buy chicken, you can buy lamb, you can ride pork through our our, uh, our online through a, through ordering and they'll ship to your place and by UPS or FedEx whoever we're using today with on dry ice. Uh, We also obviously do go to restaurants because we're creating, we're trying to create brand awareness and, you know, trying to educate people of what we're doing, because that's a big component, again, combining those regenerative agriculture, culinary arts, and and nutritional sciences. We then come up with products. So we have like a chicken, uh, pasteurized chicken bone broth, which is got in an eight ounce cup literally roger has um, i'm drinking some here so you know it has eight uh, 14 grams of protein eight grams of collagen and zero grams of fat and 70 calories and what's amazing is it's a elixir like, of life like so we have nutritionists and and, and uh, our registered dietitians on our stamp that help craft these value-added products and that I don't know how much you know about collagen and its impact on you, but chicken collagen, particularly with pasture-raised uh, chickens, uh, it in, it in, it it impacts in a positive degree your gut health, your skin elasticity, and joint inflammation, inflammation in your body, which is you know a big reason for a lot of people's uh, demise during COVID is the inflammation in your body. So we try to create uh, products that are good for them again. Their consumers, are they're learning, they're getting a product that's good for them. And then the other piece that we have is we do uh, macro and micro-balanced uh, ready-to-eat meals. Again, it's there's similar products out there, but these are really cooked on, uh, we have an R&D kitchen where we actually cook the products at Johns Sewell's University. And it's like going, it's better than almost any restaurant you go to. It's amazing. Uh, these guys craft up foods using the pasture-raised animals that are hub-and-spoke model uh basically puts together we do source from other farms if we need to, to to create a supply chain if they're growing the same standards that we have and uh and again those meals are shipped uh through the internet so that's kind of where we're at at, at this point uh and uh we're we're it's a it's a it seems to be an interesting and good model uh you got headwinds coming in with the recession so we're a, a you know wagyu beef or we're we're a certainly we could be a we were at one point a pricier solution with all the increase in, in inflation we've kept our pricing the same because we ultimately really care about getting more people to connect with us and more more you know the education the idea that we can actually get people to understand where their food comes from how it impacts them and it's impacting the environment is probably as important as 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 profitability so we're uh you know the idea is we obviously have to make be sustainable as a business but our mission is truly broader than it is simply just earning money. This is, it's a, it's kind of a, 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 a sort of really a mission based trying to do something good for the world. And uh, I, if I'm going to go to my grave, hey, I'd rather be missing don't, anything else. <laughs> yeah.
1: Don't, don't apologize for that. I think we all need to do as much as we can to What's good for the world. Ken, other than growing up on a small farm, you spent a whole career in high tech, And then you've made this transition. So how's that working out for you? I mean, how did you? You've gone from something that sounds like it was a dream for a while, and then you reached a stage that you've plunged in now, and you're all in on this on this farming after a whole career in high tech. So how's that going? Well,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's we'd have to have a whole other podcast to follow my transition. But uh, years ago, uh, I was actually. Uh, I, I finished at the University of Texas at Austin, a, a BS in electrical engineering, and actually worked for about five years doing downhole wireline exploration in South America uh, in the oil services business, and then came back and created his business. And then in every life of an entrepreneur, you. You know, you 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 know, it's God's plan, not not your own plan. Uh, twenty three years ago, my wife passed away of colorectal cancer, which probably mm-hmm. drove me to yeah. My my kids at that point, I had two, five, and nine. Now they're thirty three and twenty nine. Uh, you know, and I just became you know, I realized look, my wife was very healthy and really didn't see it coming. It was eight months of uh, getting cancer and passing away that it made me realize you know, just what's important in life, and so now. You know, uh, the cards have been dealt to me. Uh, I'm, I'm in a unique position to do this. Uh, I, it needs to be done. I don't see anybody else out doing it though. They're out there in different areas. So I saw this opportunity as an entrepreneur to, to do something I think had to be done. Um, uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, as you mentioned Thoreau and some of the others, I mean, i followed them since I was a kid in high school. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you look at it and you say, Roger, why do you do podcasts? Why do you do what you do? Why am I doing what I'm doing? It, it, look, it's, it, it seems like the right thing to do. And I often say if doors keep opening, keep going through them. Uh, we've got a phenomenal people who are encouraging us to go farm. We've got great customers. We've got great uh, partners in, in the hub and smoke model. Uh, you mentioned even ironically the farm behind me, which is part of our hub farm uh, that gentleman was one of the first persons he was, you know, ran the, the cooperative extension here in Connecticut. And yeah. he was actually an original, he was one of the first one at peace Corps under John F. Kennedy going back. Some so and his he's passed away, but his sons now are very encouraging about what we're doing. So you look, I, if people were saying, ah, Ken, what are you doing? I'd be less inclined to keep going. And I can tell you, I get tired sometimes Nick knows that's so why I've got a bunch of young kids who really the next group of of people are great. I'm working with a lot of young folks who are, you know, late twenties, mid thirties who are, are the next, you know, the next yeah. world of that we need to have happen Roger. So, uh, no, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a journey where we're, where I, I don't plan to stop. Uh, and, and I'll, I always say you can rest when you die. I'm, I'm, I'm having too much fun and, uh, uh, I feel like there's too many things that have to be done. And uh, so that's why I'm out doing.
1: Well, you know, you said, uh, Roger, we could ask you, why don't you do podcast, And I'll tell mm-hmm. you, one of the answers is why I do podcast is to have conversations like this. I really admire what you're doing, how you're doing it. I think it's really hopeful as a result of, of your efforts, people are going to enjoy the products that will be coming from the venture. But also, you get know, like 125 new farms. And People that are able to have their own experience in getting a small farm going and even if it might be in combination with something else that they're doing and jobs and so forth. But it's just all good. And if people want to hear more about this, we've had a nice conversation this morning and I really appreciate it. But where can people find more information if they either want to get your products or else, uh, Nick, maybe figure out how they become one of your spoke farms? Where do they find the information?
0: Through the website, which is, you know, uh, Azuluna Farms. That's A-Z-U-L-U-N-A foods.com. And they can go to AzalunaFarms.com to learn more about the becoming a spoke farm. So they're both linked. So you can go either way to get there. You can buy product uh, right online, or you can learn how to become uh, a hub and, uh, a hub farm or a spoke farm. Uh, our hope, again, is to, to just... Probably get online next year two more hub farms so that we can then grow out the spokes around it. So our, we kind of have a, a yin and yang here going. But yeah, azalunafoos.com, I've joked earlier, once in a blue moon, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of an opportunity to do something unique and uh, participate in, in helping them make us a, a better better country and a better world. Well,
1: we can't top that. Nick Miniter and also Ken Rappaport, I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk.
0: Roger, thank you very much. Appreciate your time as well.
1: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.